today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell your friends and subscribe. Coming up on today's show, dueling travel advisories from China and Canada. Should we go? The answer is no. Also, MPs in Britain debating a no-confidence motion in the defeat of the Brexit deal. Where do they go from here? And a Fort McMurray man who was inspired to lose 330 pounds surviving the fire. More on that coming up on The Scott Thompson Show. Thanks for listening. Dueling travel advisories, it seems, uh, being placed uh, from China and Canada. Canada started it uh, and, of course, has issued now updated updated the risk level, saying that uh, risk of arbitrary enforcement of local laws, laws and culture, death penalty, penalties for drug offenses uh, is the issue in, off, in obviously uh, telling any Canadians traveling there to exercise a high degree of caution due to the risk of arbitrary enforcement. Um, of local laws. To talk more about all of this, do we go? Do we not go? Phil Gursky is with us, President, CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. You? Good, thank you. Surprised how this has escalated? Well, you know, it's been building for a while, right? So we we end up arresting the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer of Huawei, uh, late last year based on an agreement with the United States to extradite her over some kind of sanctions busting on Iran. And, of course, the Chinese do a tit-for-tat by picking up a couple of Canadians. So, you know, when these things happen, uh, especially with countries like China, you, you can expect a reaction. Basically, you take one of ours, we'll take one of yours. So th- this is the way this game is played. Uh, so, no, I wasn't surprised at all that this is escalating at this point. Uh, do and I know we have two different cultures. I know there's two different societies there, and you certainly, uh, you know, there's a lot of differences. Uh, but you're saying tit for tat. Um, a CFO that's staying in a 14 million dollar mansion or so versus someone who's standing on death, uh, you know, on death's doorstep is is how can you equate the two as even being well, remotely? Uh, how how is this, I guess, a um, uh, a tit for tat reaction? Well. Well, I'm not equating it in terms of the severity of the penalties yeah. that people are faced. I mean, clearly, as you said, we've got two very different societies. Um, we don't have the death penalty in Canada. We haven't had it for decades. The Chinese do. Um, we can argue, you know, till the cows come home with a death penalty is warranted. That's an interesting topic. I'm, I'm personally against it for all kinds of reasons. But the fact remains, this is what Chinese law is all about. No, I meant more in the sense that China has this perception that we've insulted them that we have um, incarcerated a very senior official with very uh, close ties to the upper echelons of the Chinese government, and there's no way in hell they're not going to reciprocate by grabbing the first Canadian they find. And whether the charges are trumped up or not is irrelevant. They're, they're trying to send a message, you take one of ours, we'll take one of yours. So in that sense, it's a tit for tat. Um, so what advice would you have to those wanting to travel to China? Don't. Seriously. <laughs> it's, as simple, it's as simple as that. For a whole host of reasons, this is a very sensitive time, and, and you know there's a, there's a bigger issue here, Scott. And you, you kind of alluded to it in your in your introductory comment. You know, we got a, we have a ton of trade with China. You know, hundreds of billions of dollars with China. They're a major you know major economic partner of us. But these guys aren't our friends uh, on many levels. And and you know, I I worked in intelligence for a very long time, and I'm not going to you know cast up the ghosts of communism past kind of thing. But China isn't like us. And then do things very differently than us. So, at, at a time now of very sensitive bilateral relations, they're going to do things out of spite, out of revenge, whatever. And so, anybody 
thinking of going there now needs to have their head examined because there's no guarantees, as we're seeing right now, that a Canadian government, you know, can send in the, you know, the, the posse to rescue you because of the way that their systems operate over there. So I think if you've got travel plans to China for vacation, business, whatever, you might want to think twice before you implement those, those plans until things cool down, which might take some time. I remember talking to a professor one time, and I, and, I, and I forget what we were talking about, but I said at the end of the day, it still is a communist country. And then, of course, he started splitting hairs, and him being a lot more uh, well-versed on the topic than I was, said, well, it's not really truly a communist country because they allow this and they do that and na 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 and the commerce and the trade and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, as, as you alluded to, this is still the Communist Party of China. And, well, yeah, and, and, they, it is. And, they, and they still, as you mentioned, do things very differently than we do. Well, and if you're following it all under Xi Jinping and, and the way that he's taken China in a very different direction. So if you go back to sort of, you know, the post-89 era, there are some signs that China was opening up, whatever that means, becoming a little less draconian, a little less communist, to cite the professor's words. But that's all being reversed under Xi Jinping. And it's actually, I mean, I'm not a China expert by any stretch of the imagination. I get what I get from the economists, so I'm kind of, I know a little bit. But what the paths they're going around are not, they're not good paths. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So whether you want to split hairs as to whether, the, you know, China is as communist now as, as it was under Mao Zedong, to me is irrelevant. Um, they're, they're not playing by our rules. They're getting more and more strict on a whole bunch of issues. And as a Canadian, there aren't any guarantees once you get there. As I said, you know, we can, we can ask for consular assistance and there's international laws, but this is China. And they're going to do whatever the hell they want with you once they get you. So let's not pretend that everything's coming up roses and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're going to travel as freely in China as you do between Hamilton and Grimsby. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So uh, why so long for the Canadian government to issue a travel advisory like this? Why does it t- have to get to the point where a man is sentenced to death? Yeah, that's a really good question, Scott. So I, I'm more familiar with um, travel advisories issued for things like terrorism because we have intelligence suggesting, you know, a plot may be afoot or a terrorist group is moving and, and might actually do something. Yeah, I, it, I have to think about that. I, I guess there probably is still uh, a certain part of the government, and I can understand it, that doesn't want to ruffle too many feathers because of the economic arrangements I referred to earlier on in our conversation. So they're kind of pussyfooting around a little bit. They're trying to maybe rescue this situation so it doesn't go pear-shaped completely. Um, But it seems like with the now this death sentence on this Canadian uh, drug smuggler, it seems like the the ante's been been raised. And I think now the government probably thought, hmm, this is getting worse than we had feared. Uh, Maybe we need a general advisor to Canadians that you know, you shouldn't go. And, and let's not forget, at one point, there were like 10 or so Canadians taken after the CFO of Huawei yeah. was, was, was picked up. And mm-hmm. I think only two are still in custody, but a whole bunch were picked up and mostly released. So this has been building for a while. Uh, can we be accused of being too naive with all of this, trying too hard to be nice and get a trade deal and not really keeping an eye on what is going on, whether it's with Canadians there or even, you know, this whole thing with Schellenberg, it's opened up a whole uh, a different can of worms. Uh, again, uh, f- shedding more light on the amount of fentanyl that comes in from southern China to, to parts of Canada. Uh, it, how does that play out in all of this? Yeah, that's a good point you make. I, I think there's there's two ways in which we've been naive. First of all, there's Canadians that are just woefully naive about travel in the, in the first place. There's a case, I don't know if you saw that last week, a, a woman in Burkina Faso was picked up probably by a terrorist group. 
Uh, and, you know, the, the warnings are don't travel from A to B. So what you do, she jumped from A to B, and she got picked up by terrorists, and now she wants out. So, like, you know, read your travel advisors first, first and foremost. Secondly, and I'm going to probably get in trouble for saying this, but the Canadian government doesn't always take the advice that its intelligence agencies give it um, and, and run with it. There's all kinds of considerations. There's all kinds of competing priorities and views on the matter, which is good in a democracy. But, you know, in, in all my days at CSIS, we would, we would say things and, and sometimes kind of shake our heads when it turned out that, well, thank you very much for your advice, and then, you know, put it amongst everything else. So call it naivete. I would call it something a little more serious, which I've thought about for a long time, and that we don't have a really good intelligence culture in this country in the sense that government officials, many of them don't understand what intelligence is and what it can do for them. And so when you get information saying, hey, you might want to think about doing this, it's not always acted upon. So maybe it's a combination of being a little more naive and secondly, um, not understanding the information that you're getting. And at this point you raised, I think there, there, are, there are bigger concerns, right? I mean, if we have a bazillion dollars worth of trade between the two countries and there's jobs in Canada that depend on that, you don't want to you know, upset the apple cart for fear of all the jobs disappearing. We've had enough jobs disappearing in this country in the past couple of months with plant closings like GM in Oshawa. And I think the government is very sensitive to that. So in fairness to the government, I've been a little critical. Um, they got a lot of balls in the air simultaneously and a lot of considerations. And it's not always easy to come up with the best decision right away, I think. Will this sort of thing, as what's happened again with these people being detained and uh, and and the one gentleman being retried, will this continue until the Huawei CFO is released? And what if that never happens? Well, and you know, and I both know Scott. These court, these cases can go on for years. Exactly, right? she's out on bail right now, but this could go on for quite some time. I, I can only imagine that there's some pretty serious energetic, high-level talks going on behind the scenes between Canada and China on how to figure out a way out of this thing in which both countries can save face. Um, I think that's what normally happens. But I would say for the time being, it's probably going to keep uh, ticking over. And uh, I, I think the advice on, on, you know, don't go to China if you, unless you absolutely have to is a really good one right now. And I, and I hope Canadians take that to heart in the same way that you know backpacking through Afghanistan is probably not a good idea in 2019. Yeah. And if you do so, uh, you're an idiot. And, and if you get picked up, don't don't pick up the phone and say, well, I didn't know there was a problem and I want to be rescued tomorrow. So uh, so much is common sense, Scott. Uh, as, as a Canadian, as a, as, a, as a Westerner, read the news, listen to CHML, find out what's happening in the world, and, and, and make, a, make a wise decision as opposed to saying, well, you know, I'm Canadian, nothing's going to happen to me. And if, if something happens to me, the Mounties are around the corner. Uh, no, they're not. So, you know, be smart about it. Uh, this may sound like a far-fetched question, but it's not the first time I've asked it. Could China do something, considering her wealth, to try to get her out? Oh, I'm sure that's happening right now. I'm sure there's, uh, given again, given her status, I even sne- her even, even get her out under the under the radar. Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, well, certainly it's possible because once you're out on bail, we you know there are conditions usually, but. Hey, I've seen in terrorism cases like Aaron Driver a couple of years ago, a guy in a peace bond, and he ended up building a bomb and, and luckily didn't kill anybody. So uh, the fact that she's not, you know, in, in a small cell with, with bars means that, you know, keep, people can get access to her. Whether there's some kind of a miraculous rescue attempt being made, it would be an interesting, almost sounds like a John le Carre novel. It does, movie. it does. It sounds too far-fetched, but you know, in today's world, Phil. <laughs> eh, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. and. The only way to ensure she's not going anywhere is to keep her, you know, in some kind of a holding cell. So, I, 
you know, Scott, I'd be surprised if that happens, but you may never say never. But I think what's more likely is there'll be some kind of face-saving diplomatic solution between the two countries. We'll shake hands and, you know, agree to disagree or something and then and then smile and things go back to normal in six months' time. Isn't, in the end, obviously Canada is caught between a rock and a hard place here with this international extradition warrant and in, in, in China. Uh, in the end, isn't this all up to the United States? Isn't the fate of, of the CFO and uh, these Canadians being held, isn't that in Donald Trump's hands? In some ways. And, you know, I've, I always found the initial arrest a little bit puzzling because... You know, there's a lot, you know, Huawei, as you're well aware, has been on the news for all kinds of reasons lately in terms of, you know, do they actually work for the Communist Party? Uh, if, we, if we have them build the 5G network, does it mean that Canadian communications might be used by the Chinese like, for spying? She was arrested on some bizarre sanctions law about Iran. Nothing to do with Huawei's communication systems, nothing to do with spying, but something to do with, with you know, Trump's um, obsession with Iran. So it is in the Americans' hands. And this was really kind of like an unnecessary move as far as I'm concerned. We have valid reasons to be worried about Huawei. And, and, my, and my former directors at thesis and, and others have come out quite strongly and said we want to really think this carefully. So yeah, it is an American problem, and uh, they're the ones that can solve it tomorrow by saying, you know what, this isn't necessary, let's, let's go back to square one. So yeah, I think it is ultimately in, in, in Donald Trump's hands, and if <laughs> sorry, it was in Donald Trump's hands were screwed in many ways. That being said, I was under, I, I, from what I had heard, this had been go- going on in this investigation long before Donald Trump's days. That being said, he still is the president of the day. We're not sure how much the left hand knew what the right hand was doing here. Um, but he certainly has used it in, in when he has spoke and used it as leverage as far as trade and such. Where do you think this is going to end? Really hard to say. Um, I've been reading a lot lately. The Americans are turning up the heat on Iran again. So I think that, you know, saying, okay, let's let's call it a day and let her go, it's not going to happen anytime soon because the, the Americans don't want to be seen as being soft on Iran. And we, we could talk for hours, Scott, whether that's an exaggeration or not. I happen to believe it is uh, based on my experience. But So I don't think we're going to see any movement anytime soon, which means the, um, the extradition request is going to be still there for quite some time. And then what we do with it um, is interesting, based from the American perspective. But like I said, I, I only imagine there's a, a, a flurry of activity uh, between Canada and China, and to a lesser extent, the United States, to try to figure out a solution to this. But no, she's not going to get out anytime soon, because the Americans don't want it to happen. Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have been following Brexit for far too long now. Uh, and MPs in Britain are debating a no-confidence motion after after the defeat of PM Theresa May's Brexit deal. To get the latest on all of this, Akeem Harlman is with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Akeem, thanks for the time. Much, much appreciated, Akeem. Thanks for taking the time. You're most welcome. Uh, two years of chaos and uh, now nothing. Is, is is that accurate? How are citizens in the UK reacting to this? Well, I think they are confused and divided, as are their political representatives. So um, it's really a situation where um, there's various options and all have enthusiastic backers, but uh, the political system has not been able to bring forward a compromise. 
Is there a compromise out there, or is are we looking for something that isn't there? So far, it isn't there, because the deal that was rejected yesterday was the government's attempt to build a compromise to deliver an orderly Brexit, as uh, decided in the referendum two and a half years ago. Um, but it was rejected, um, and now it seems that the more radical options, either leaving without any kind of deal with the European Union or potentially reversing Brexit, are back on the agenda. Um, May lost the vote uh, and now approaches a, a non-confidence vote, but yet we're hearing that it looks like the government won't fall. Uh, how is this making sense? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, so um, more than 100 uh, MPs of her own party voted against her yesterday on the signature policy of this government. And yet uh, they have uh, declared that they will uh, support Theresa May in today's confidence vote. Um, I think the best explanation is that um, an would not at all help um, in the process of bringing about Brexit. It would not resolve any of the underlying problems and dilemmas and controversies. So um, uh, a a better approach is is to uh, try to work together between political parties, um, which obviously is not necessarily the British tradition, but I think it's what the country now needs, that the Conservatives and Labour get together in the interest of the country um, and uh, uh, sideline their own hardliners to build consensus for a workable solution. Are they more likely to do that now we are where we are? Well, there's certainly pressure to get something done because the clock is ticking, if you will. Uh, March 29th is the date um, of Brexit that has been determined. Uh, there could be a request made to the European Union to delay Brexit. Um, all of the other member states would have to agree to that. Um, but if such, a, uh, if such a request is not made or if one member state says no, then uh, we are facing a no-deal scenario on March 29th. And even if a request is successfully made for a delay, such a delay will likely not be for a very long time uh, for the uh, one reason that the European Parliament elections are coming up in May um, and the United Kingdom had not uh, intended to participate in these elections because they thought they were no longer a member state. Um, so that limits really, unless they, they want to try to organize an election for the European Parliament on short notice, that really limits the number of weeks by which Brexit can be pushed back. If you are Theresa May, what are you thinking today? I mean, what does what does her party want from her? What do they expect? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Um, her, her party, the problem in her party is that there are still many uh, influential people who... Um, have not really embraced the realities of Brexit. And that is that you cannot, on the one hand, leave the European Union and, and, uh, and on the other hand, continue to enjoy many of the benefits of EU membership. Uh, so there are too many people in Theresa May's own party who simply haven't been willing to embrace reality. And she, um, it has to be said, has for a long time uh, done the same and, and only recently has come around to actually face uh, the challenges of Brexit. It hasn't been until last summer that the British government 
um, defined what it really wanted to get out of the Brexit negotiations by then, uh, more than half uh, of the time was all for that that is there for negotiations was already passed. So, yeah, it's difficult for Theresa May, and I, I have the impression she does not really know herself what her party wants from her. Uh, but still, she wants to soldier on and, and, and has uh, set herself the objective of some delivering Brexit. Why, not, why would Theresa May not just step down and say, OK, you can do it better? Go ahead. Let's see what you got. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't think there is anyone who really has a better solution. So maybe that's uh, an argument uh, for her. She has already declared when in December there was a no confidence right. motion within her own party that she would not lead the party into the next election. Uh, so for her, the only prize, uh, the only um, success that she can still have in politics is to somehow um, make Brexit a reality. So I think that's her motivation to say, okay, I, I take all the abuse, all the ridicule, um, but uh, I, 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 my place in the history book might be somehow uh, getting this done, even if it's not pretty. But it just seems odd, you know, May losing uh, the vote yesterday, then perhaps we'll win the non-confidence today uh, to, to continue to run government, but it seems we've just gone full circle and back to where we were. Exactly. Um, so the only hope really in, in my assessment it would be that after the no confidence vote, um, both the Conservative Party of Theresa May and the Labour Party of uh, Jeremy Corbyn decide in the interest of uh, uh, the country to put aside uh, their partisan differences and try to work together on uh, a compromise on Brexit, which, of course, then would have to be negotiated with the European Union. Right. So um, uh, lots of the debate in Britain uh, is very inward focused and uh, is, is simply assumes that the EU would go along with whatever the British want. And that, of course, is not the case. They have their own interests, their own red lines, their own um, uh, concerns that need to be protected. And that's what makes all of this so complicated. So how is the EU reacting to this, especially watching the vote go down and now a non-confidence vote? They must know they're going to get another knock on the door looking for a better deal. They do know that, but for now, uh, the the uh, communication that has come out of Brussels said uh, it's now up to the British to come with new proposals. Um, so uh, the EU has made it very clear that they do not see it as their um, obligation at the moment to present anything. They are essentially waiting for Theresa May to come with a concrete proposal, which could then be discussed. Um, but that is something that after the no-confident vote, assuming that she wins, she would quickly um, have to put uh, together. And, uh, and then, of course, the question is whether what she proposes is A, um, able to get a majority back home, and B, something that the EU can uh, approve. Uh, is it possible to see compromise here after two years of what we've been through? Um, the scope for compromise is not uh, enormously large. Uh, any deal, if you want to leave with a deal, would look fairly similar to the one that we have. Yeah. Because the, uh, the, uh, the main issue that um, has uh, generated many of these controversies, the issue of how to um, prevent border controls between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland, which is an independent EU member state, mm. that issue doesn't have 
an easy solution uh, and um, uh, uh, there, there's not um, a, a, an endless range of, uh, of uh, solutions to, to this tricky issue. Will we end up back where we started and that is with another referendum? Because it certainly appears that no solution is viable here. That is a I mean, is this just, are we just delaying the obvious here? Well, the question is, what would be the question yeah. that the people are asked in the second referendum? And would that necessarily help? Um, because I mean, one of the problems of the first referendum was that um, it wasn't very clear what Brexit would mean leaving the European Union. And well, that, cer- that uh, certainly won't be a problem now, Akeem. <laughs> well, no. The question is, are we voting Remain versus May's negotiated deal? Right. Are we voting May's negotiated deal versus no deal scenario? So, and, and, and public opinion polls show that the British um, public is, is deeply divided on these issues and doesn't necessarily have a, a clear position. So we might well have a situation of another referendum that again um, votes in favor of Brexit and then we are really back at square one even so, if um, even if there is another vote and and they decide to reverse all of this and just go back to the way it was is that possible now um legally it is possible politically obviously um there has a, a lot of damage has been done i'm not sure if the eu the other member states would be enormously enthusiastic about uh, welcoming the british back right. certainly they would be less willing to make exceptions for the british which they have o- over many years done uh, granting them rebates to budgetary contributions and so on so i think if uh, all of this was reversed uh, britain would probably have a tougher time to um, push through its interests in uh, in Europe. And of course, domestically, this would create something like a perpetual conspiracy theory of a large segment of the population thinking that they have somehow been cheated out of Brexit. So yeah, it's I not guess, necessarily a good solution. And in the end, if you're, if you're going to hold a referendum, you just can't keep holding one until you finally get it right, I guess. That defeats the purpose. But what? let me ask you this. What does this say about the use of referendums and giving, because many say, let the people have their vote, da-da-da. Uh, what, what does this say about the use of referendums? Well, it's, it clearly says that um, uh, sometimes the referendum is just not able to capture the complexity um, of uh, the political issues at hand. The referendum result was very clear, um, and I believe that it fully reflected the majorities in the population at the time. Um, but uh, there was some misinformation in the referendum. But even more importantly, uh, the complexities of negotiating Brexit, all of these issues with the Irish border and so on, uh, they were just not, uh, most of the voters did not just fully grasp that because these are extremely complicated issues. So um, there is a case to be made for representative democracy uh, on on this basis of uh, uh, complexity of the issues to be decided alone. Uh, what in in the short term? What does this mean for the UK's economy? In the short term, the markets have been surprisingly stable. Um, 
in part because everyone expected this deal to fail. Um, but um, the implications could be enormous, especially if no solution is found and we are heading to this no deal Brexit scenario, which would mean that the UK leaves on March 29th. But uh, the very close economic relationship that they now have um, is replaced with the European Union is replaced essentially with uh, tr the two entities treating each other like they had no previously established relationship. Um, and that would be very disruptive for the British economy. So there's, there's certainly strong pressure from economic actors to find some kind of compromise um, or if not delay uh, Brexit until uh, a compromise can be found. Uh, more damage to the UK market than the EU's? Um, yeah, that's correct, um, because uh, the UK is more, but it, I mean, it, it's also bad for the EU market, but uh, the UK is more dependent on access to the EU market than vice versa. Um, so really, there's no incentive for the EU to, to, to throw open the arms for the UK. No, the EU negotiates, obviously, with its own interests in mind. And one important component of those interests is to say um, we, we cannot create a precedent for uh, leaving the EU being attractive. Um, so they clearly have other populist groups in other member states in mind as well, who are who might be contemplating also to, um, proposing to withdraw their country from the European Union. And one of the um, objectives of the EU negotiation strategy is to say, well, it must be very clear that if you leave the EU, you lose something. Uh, you might gain some independence, but you lose some of the benefits of membership. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's why, uh, even though there would clearly also be costs to the um, EU economy in the no-deal scenario, um, the um, EU has been um, reluctant to I mean, just accede to all of the British uh, wishes. So if this just keeps going around and around in circles and by the time the deadline arrives there is no deal and an exit happens without a deal uh obviously we're hearing it won't be good for the uk's economy will that force a deal well do, do we have to get there before we can solve this it, that might well be possible. I mean, there, there's lots of horror scenarios out there about what would happen in the no deal scenario from um, there's no regulation for air traffic, uh, access to medications and to food and all that in uh, Britain may be impeded. Um, some of that, I think, is exaggerated because uh, the EU and, and the European states that form the EU have a, a history of finding pragmatic compromises when needed. Uh, so even if there was a no-deal scenario, it might well be possible that there's then still negotiations and, and after a couple of days or weeks, some kind of solution is found. Uh, but obviously that would not um, <laughs> still not be a good scenario. Is there a reason to believe there will be a deal? I mean, are we chasing tails here? I mean, in the end of the day, could it be they're just, this can't be done? Possibly. I mean, it, it, I, in my assessment, it really depends on whether the, the MPs who voted against the deal yesterday um, are willing to um, accept a, a revised deal that's more or less similar, just cosmetically different from what we have, because it's very difficult to see 
how any deal could look that is radically different from what was voted from what was voted down yesterday. Uh, so it depends on whether uh, these uh, um, MPs just wanted to make a symbolic statement, right. just wanted to act tough. But now with all of the pressures of having a deal, in the end they are willing to come around to support something that that looks. Uh, not that different from what was voted down yesterday. But the, the scale of the defeat yesterday makes that scenario not particularly likely because it, Theresa May would have to convince a large number of people to change their minds. So this is more than a show of face then. Um, again, it just seems that we're, we're exactly back at the beginning where we started in the first place. Is this a war of terminology? Is it a war of... Um, how close are these two sides, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, um, the the core issue really is this whole issue of the, of the Irish border, and I want to come back to that yeah. again, because there simply isn't a good solution for that. The idea is you want to prevent to have any physical kind of customs border between these two territories. But that can only work if they are in the same kind of customs territory. Yeah. And that would only work if the UK accepts to continue to be tied to EU trade policy. The only alternative to that would be either to accept that there is a border in Ireland, and both sides have said they don't want that. Um, but and the second option would be for the British to accept that there's an internal customs border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, which for obvious reasons is also unattractive to the British. But um, these are really the only three options, an Irish border, a uh, border within the UK, or a common customs territory. And this is really a question for the British to decide what they want, and and, uh, and they haven't made that decision. Akeem Harlman has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Carleton University. Akeem, fascinating and very complicated. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked a lot way back when of the Fort McMurray wildfires and what had happened and, and, and how it transformed that area and the courageous people that uh, that lived through it and and uh, had to rebuild and, and, and move on from that uh, terrifying experience. And I remember talking afterwards to some experts that, uh, you know, th- this is going to change lives. This is you just can't live through something like this and not have it make an impact on your life to, to go through something that is so traumatic. Uh, but I don't think many of us thought this way. A man in Fort McMurray has lost 330 pounds after the Fort McMurray wildfires. He's now written a book about this experience. The book is called Through Thick and Thin, How a Wildfire Was a Wake-Up Call to Transform My Life. Uh, Tom Bussey is with us now, and he is from Fort McMurray. Tom, thanks for the, or sorry, Tony. Uh, Tony, yeah, thanks Tony. for the time. Much Sorry about that, Tony. I'm calling you oh, Tom. okay. Uh, you know what? You lost so much weight, I didn't even recognize you. I thought you were Tom. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> terrible. Tony, first of all, congratulations. What an amazing feat this is. Uh, thank you very much. It's it's like a dream come true, to be honest. So, uh, how did this happen? Uh, you know, you're up in Fort McMurray. You're working. What happened? Well, we were uh, north of Fort McMurray at the time. We weren't allowed to stay in the city uh, because you're still dealing with a lot of the fires and so on. So we were all north, uh, staying in the camps, and um, the fire uh, it seemed to be dying down at the time, but then it just picked up again. And we were staying in a camp, so the fires got pretty bad. There was one camp that actually 
caught on fire. So uh, for safety reasons, they decided to evacuate us and uh, get us out of there as quickly as possible. And that's when all of this uh, started because during evacuation, uh, there was a gentleman there and we were all lined up to get on this bus to leave the camp. And uh, these are like uh, Greyhound type of uh, style type of coach buses. Right. So we get up to get on the bus and he takes me from the back of the line and puts me to the very front. Now, when you're huge, like I was almost 600 pounds at the time, you hate, you hate being singled out. But I understand why they did it, because you don't want a man that size. I mean, it was well over 30 degrees, beginning of May. It was unusually hot at that time of year for Fort McMurray. So they put me in the front of the line, and then they put me on the bus. And that's where it kind of hit me, because I got on the bus, but they couldn't put anybody next to me. They had to keep an empty seat because I was spilling over into that seat so much because of my size. But then you look out the window and you see all of these people waiting to get on the bus. Any one of them, if I was just a normal-sized person, could have shared that seat with me, but they couldn't put anybody there. Wow. And it was the same thing when I got on the plane. There's an airport uh, north and a good-sized airport. Planes were just landing, filling up, taking off, more planes landing and so on just to get us out of there. And I got on the plane, and the plane was completely packed, except for that one seat next to me. They couldn't put anybody there. So uh, with all of that, I kind of finally reached the point. I mean, life when you're that size is not happy. You're miserable. Everything is hard. The world is not designed for people that's almost 600 pounds. You you basically handicap yourself. Hmm. And... So it was everything, it was all of that, and but that was that was it. That was the final straw. I, I couldn't keep living my life like that because now I'm affecting other people. And I always was to a, to an extent, but that really hit home to me. And and from then on, I just I just changed everything. Had you thought about weight loss before? What is it about that moment that had an impact? Oh, oh yeah, I always thought about weight loss. Every every morning, you you don't you didn't get up and not wish you were somebody else. I mean, smaller. You always you felt trapped. You just wanted out of that body. You just wanted to be free. I mean, now I got freedom. I can't even describe it. But it, it was just something about seeing those people waiting. Now they got. I didn't know at the time how long they were going to have to wait. It could have been hours. But. Just the idea that, okay, now, Tony, your weight is really affecting other people. This, this, is, this is enough for this. The stress of it all, everything, it all came to that point. And I, and I just had to change. I couldn't keep going on, on like that. I mean, uh, to be honest, at that time, I mean, you're carrying around all that extra weight. You don't even know how many years you got left. Hmm. And uh, so I started. I, I, I pretty much started right away started walking. Uh, it was very hard for me to walk in the beginning, uh, not being able to wear socks, you're having pain in your back, your legs, things like that. So I, I mean, my stomach came out to my knees, so I couldn't even bend over to get socks on. Hmm. So I would walk for three, four minutes at first, and I changed my diet drastically. I cut out all junk food. I've been two and a half years now since I've had any type of uh, treats that you would say, like chips or chocolate or ice cream. I stay away from processed sugar. Uh, for example, a coffee, I used to have three sugar, three cream. Now I have black. Hmm. Things like that. And I haven't touched it since to now where I don't crave it at all. 
and I just change my diet. I eat pretty clean. I eat a lot of veggies, a lot of fruit, uh, meat, eggs, that type of thing. And I don't eat late at night. And after a while, within the first month, I had a 30, uh, 30 pounds gone. Because the only way I could weigh was on a, a scale at a warehouse. Right. So when they allowed us back into Fort McMurray and we went back to work normally again, I went into the warehouse and I used a scale. And that's when I finally had 30 pounds gone. And then by September of that year, I had 100 pounds gone. And that's when I could really uh, feel the difference and everything just started snowballing. So when you went back to work in Fort McMurray, you were already down 30 pounds. How long was yeah. that? Oh, that took about a month. Wow. So from uh, later part of May to about uh, partway through June, I can't remember the exact day that I weighed. But yeah, that was, uh, that was about a month. And I had 100 pounds gone by September. How long did it take you to get to that weight? When did you notice this was spiraling out of control? I mean, you just don't go to 600 pounds. How did you get there? No. When I moved to Fort McMurray, I was actually living in uh, Peterborough, Ontario there for a few years. And when I moved to Fort McMurray in 1999, I was about 320, 330, but kind of stayed that same for a while. I was still, you know, I could still do basically anything. And uh, in 2004, I drove back to Newfoundland, where I'm originally from. And when I came back to Fort McMurray, I just realized that nothing fit. Friends were saying, oh, you put on a lot of weight and things like that. But nothing could fit me anymore. The coveralls didn't fit me at work. My clothes didn't fit me. And then it seemed like over the years, it just gradually increased to the point where I got up to 567 pounds. Because as you get heavier, you get more depressed about it. And the more depressed you get, the more you eat. Yeah. It was just a vicious cycle. Especially when you got, you know, when you're, when you're past 400 pounds, four, 450. Because now you're a lot less able to do the normal things. You know, it's harder to buy clothes. It's harder to walk. You're, you're becoming less social. So you, you become uh, very to yourself. And so you look more and more to food for pleasure. Or company for anything, right? Um, did you get any sort of professional help at all to do this? Um, did you just decide that was that, or, or did, did you consult a doctor? Any of the, any of that for this? No professional help, none. I just really to do it. nothing. No, no. Uh, in the, in the beginning, uh, when I did start this, I talked to a doctor because I I thought I had diabetes. Mm-hmm. I was starting, my legs were tingling, my skin was getting very brown up up around my face. So I got checked out that way, but besides that, no, no professional help. I just started walking and, um, yeah, just, just changed my diet and that was it. The thing, what I did then is the exact same thing I do now. Really? I, yeah, I still, I still eat the same foods and I still walk every day. So... For anyone who has had issues like this, we know how difficult it is. We know how hard it is to yes. stick to something like this. Yes. How do you explain the fact that without any help, other than that initial visit to the doctor, you managed to do this? Well, you got to, what I tell people is stay away from the very things that got you to that point to begin with. You know, I, I treat junk food like a, like an alcoholic would treat booze yeah a person suffering with alcoholism don't go and have a, a bottle of beer once a week i just stay away from it I, I don't need any of that anymore 
like you hear people that they lose weight and they put it back on, but if you dig back a little further, what they've done is they start going back to their old eating ways. Mm-hmm. Just so just avoid that, because you you have a new life. You finally defeated that obesity. Uh, you know it's horrible. You finally defeated that. Why would you go back to the way you were? And now, I mean, you know, for me, having uh, over three hundred pounds gone. The freedom that I have because of that, the abilities that just to live a normal life like, say, you would or anybody else would, that brings me a happiness that no bag of chips or ice mm. cream or anything could ever, ever give me. Tony, t- Tony, what was that first few days or weeks like? Because they say that that's some of the most difficult time. Now, was, oh, yes. that, was that situation that happened... Uh, in Fort McMurray, that strong that you were able to draw on that for strength? Like, how did you get through that first period? Especially when, you know, I mean, if you're eating junk food, it's it's easy just to go out and get some. Oh yeah, exactly. Because I mean, I was uh, I was living out of town. I was living in a hotel. It was during an evacuation. It's a very stressful time. I mean, you're you're not sure. You keep hearing reports, but you don't know what kind of shape your city is in. Uh, you know, your friends are losing their homes. You don't know what kind of shape your own home's in. So I, I had every excuse just to go back and say, oh, I'm going to get a bag of chips or some ice cream or some fried chicken tonight. But I had reached a point where I just couldn't keep going on like that anymore. I, I, I had to do something, and I finally had the time to do it. So, I mean, I was living on an evacuation. I would still go to restaurants mm-hmm. and eat. But I would eat healthy. Like, for example, I would go to Tim Hortons. And I don't know if I might have said the name, but I would go to Tim Hortons and, and I would get a, instead of getting donuts or anything, I would get a coffee, black, or half a cream at the most, and I'd get a bowl of chili without bread. Yeah. Or you go to Swiss Chalet and you get a double egg chicken dinner, but instead of getting fries, get the veggies with it yep. and don't eat the skin on the chicken. Mm-hmm. Now you just got to roast chicken with veggies. Yeah. There's all kinds of options. You can go to a gas station, and instead of getting a bag of chips or anything when you're driving, you can get a banana and an apple. Yeah. All, most gas stations sell fruit now. So it's just making wise choices. And then I go out for a walk because with everything else that was going on, the last thing you need is all that extra weight. You know, and now, you know, once the weight starts coming off, like it was a positive. Yeah, I could see how I could see how once you started to see results, that would motivate you. But what about that period uh, when you're deciding to quit, but you haven't seen quite seen the results yet? You said the thirty pounds in the first month or so. Yeah. How 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 do you keep yourself motivated before you get to that point? It was it was basically. I mean, I was seeing results pretty quick, but mm-hmm. it, it was basically no matter what pain or or what I was going through to walk and so on to start my diet and to start losing weight. The pain of being almost 600 pounds every day was way beyond that. Yeah. You you know, it was either suffer through some pain in the beginning and watch your life get easier or keep bearing that physical and mental pain for the rest of your life. And maybe even worse because I mean, where would I have stopped at? I was almost at 600. Would I have went to 700? Would I have went to 800? What if I fell down and, and broke an ankle and I'm bedridden? Yeah. You know, who knows where where it would have ended? And and how long can your body carry carry on having all that much weight? 
on your heart and so on. What do your family and friends say about this? Oh, they're 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 beyond. They're so relieved. My my mom is so happy. My daughter, she's she's beyond excited. Uh, they're they're just very proud and very relieved. I mean, they they would talk to me and be concerned about me and so on. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's I, I they're, they're so happy for me. So happy. And what about your health? Has it has it responded? Has it come back? Oh, my health is 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 everything. Uh, there's no pain anymore in my back, or there's no tingling in my legs. My skin is cleared up. I mean, I was getting to the point, like in my right eye, I was getting like not trying to be gross or anything, but I was getting like pus and water would come down from my right eye. Hmm. And I used to think that was maybe a sign of diabetes. I don't have that anymore. Yeah. I used to wake up in the middle of the night choking. I don't have that anymore. Oh, it's it's all it's. And mentally, I mean, the mental side of it, you're, you're more confident. You can go out see your friends. You don't mind being in crowds. You, you know, it's, it's things. One thing I notice is with that weight gone, things don't get to you as much anymore. Hmm. I became a lot more mellow because hmm. you're not constantly in pain. What uh, What was the exercise of writing the book like? What was that like for you? That was a bit, <laughs> that was a bit, I'll be honest, a bit hard at first. Uh, the, the man I work with at work on it, Mark Griffin, uh, he asked all the, the proper questions, I guess you could say, that really dig down to why I got that size. And I'm usually a fairly uh, reserved person when it comes to talking about emotions and so on. And it was, I mean, there was a couple of times I choked up a bit, but, uh, I wanted to make the book as real as possible because my big thing with the book is, I remember so vividly when I was that size, how you would kind of, you would feel alone a lot. You would feel like nobody else was going through what you were going through. So if a person out there that's struggling with obesity, whether they're two, three, 400 pounds overweight, whether it's maybe it's only 50 and they're, they're struggling with day-to-day life and they're thinking, wow, there's nobody else in the world that's going through this like I am. And they can read the book and they can see all the detail of what it was like for me day to day and the things I struggle with. And they can say, wow, Tony went through the very exact same thing I did. There was no tricks or nothing. He just started walking through the pain, through all of that. And he, and he was 41 when he started it. And he managed to lose the weight and I can do it. And, th- and that's my hope right there. Uh, you told us about how you got to this size over time and such. Uh, are there always underlying issues with it? Is with this? Is it not just necessarily the love of food that gets out of hand? What did you learn about yourself? Oh, there's definitely underlying issues. Uh, people, the thing about you know not only food, but the thing about drugs, the thing about beer, the thing about anything or booze, I should say, anything like that. When it's used in excess to bring you happiness, the happiness is very temporary. Hmm. And eventually, it's going to destroy you. So you're constantly, for me, I don't drink, I don't do drugs or anything. So food was my drug. Anytime I was looking for a little bit of happiness and escape or anything, I would turn to that. But that source of happiness was slowly killing me. And, uh, you know, I just start to realize that, especially with the weight gone, that the world is such a beautiful, wonderful place full of wonderful people that there's so much else out there to give you happiness besides food. 
I stopped looking at food as a, as a source of happiness, and now I look at it as a source of fuel hmm. to bring me happiness in other areas. I mean, I can travel now. I'm free. I can go visit friends. I can, I can, you know, I can go into a restaurant and don't have to worry if they have tables or not. I can go fit in a booth. I can go to a store and buy normal clothes. I can get up in the morning and put socks on now. Hmm. I can go through day-to-day life and not be stared at, not be singled out because of my size and not wonder, how am I going to do this or that or that because I don't fit. I don't have to worry about that. I mean, that's that's a happiness. Like I've never, I haven't felt that in years. What advice would you have for others who are staring at the same challenge? Don't give up. Realize that if you can just start and stick with it, that life gets so much easier. I mean, life is so short. We get one crack at this. And it's not meant to be wasted away on a couch, eating yourself into an early grave, or even if you're dealing with drug abuse or alcoholism or whatever you're dealing with. Life is too beautiful to be to be constantly stuck in that addiction. And you can defeat it. You're, you're not trapped. Never believe uh, the tricks that your mind might tell you, saying, oh, you're no good, or you're trapped, or you can't do this, you're too old, or you're too big, or you're too far gone. You never are. And, like, it took me about two years, and two years in the grand scheme of things is nothing. And now I'm free. Anybody can be free like that. And then when you go out and you and you see what life has to offer, once you've kicked that bad habit, whatever you're involved in, the rewards and, and everything, oh, it's just it's beyond anything, any type of temporary happiness that any other addiction can bring. Wow. So just don't give up. Just start. Just don't give up. Love yourself enough to go out and do it. It's going to be hard at first. I mean, I, I, I struggle. I had horrible headaches. I was going through major withdrawal for sugar and so on. But now I'm free of all of that. And I can't even describe the feelings that I have every day when I wake up. Tony Bussey has been with us. Fort McMurray man who lost over 330 pounds after the wildfire, yes. inspiring him Uh, to change his life and his lifestyle. Tony, what an unbelievable story. Again, congratulations uh, to you, and I'm I'm sure, not only with your book, but anybody who's been listening to to you being interviewed and stuff, you have inspired many to follow in your footsteps. So uh, good good luck. Congratulations to you, Tony, and thanks for sharing your story. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.